We talked about a few weeks ago, you went from not even being seen as worthy enough by your own dad to be considered as an option for God's anointed king. And you were the one of eight brothers who were left and ignored and to attend the sheep while the rest of your brothers were lined up and considered. Imagine that you went from that to seeing delivering water and food to the front lines of a battle and, and being interested in it, and your own brother telling you, get out of here, you're just wanting to gawk. You don't belong here. That David, if you're in his shoes, you then become the unlikely war hero who defeats and slays Goliath, but you do so with a very different posture. You're actually humble and you believe that God is, was the hero of that battle because it wasn't actually you who did it, even though God used you in the midst of that. And you are now a hero who has, as this passage is describing, functionally adopted by the king. Sounds like a, sounds like a fairy tale, right? And right up until that point, it does, but then it quickly turns into a nightmare. This king that you fought for, that you've been looking up to, that you are just honored and, and, and amazed that he's welcoming you into his royal court. He seems kind of insane. And he's, he's treating you like a human shish kebab. And you're learning that the axiom that we often use in the modern era, that no good deed goes unpunished. Like the bait and switch of that having your entire life upended in that way and then seemingly good and then finding out how absolutely catastrophically bad it is is something I think we can identify with. What's really interesting about this passage, you may have noticed it, is in many places in First and Second Samuel, as we're going through the life of David, David is almost always the protagonist in the story. Right? We, we actually get some insight into how he, what he was thinking or how he was feeling, and, and, and he is the focus of the, the action in a passage. But here, even though he's involved at every step, he's actually more the context for things that are going on. He's more the setting or maybe, maybe the catalyst. People are responding to him in a sense, but it's more of this context for, for Jonathan, the son of the king, and his father, the king himself, Saul. We don't get anything about David's state of mind, how he experienced all this, or really even anything about how he responds at all besides that he evaded two spears that had been thrown at him. In this passage, and especially, but really throughout the entire sermon series that we're going to be exploring the life of David in, David, as so often happens, he is this mirror. His, his, his person in First and Second Samuel is a mirror that's held up to reflect back toward us something about what's going on in the passage, but also something that is going on in our lives and in our hearts as we reflect on it. In this passage, what's being reflected, particularly in this contrast between Saul and Jonathan, is something very important about how we view a, a, a critically neglected part of human flourishing, for us, and that is friendship. So let's look at how 
1 Samuel contrasts these two different kinds of friendship. The first, I'm actually going to tackle Saul's contrast here first, and that would be in verses 6 through 16. It's a, it's a transactional friendship, okay, a transactional friendship. I want to, I want to introduce to you a, a new phrase probably that um, you, will help you significantly in uh, Trivia Night. Uh, and, but as soon as I explain what this is, it's going to be one of those things that you can't unsee it. You can't not see it in so many different aspects of, uh, of life right now. And it's a phrase that uh, coined by a philosopher and a polymath named René Girard. Um, René Girard, was a, he was a mathematician, he was a social psychologist and a historian. He just kind of did everything and published over 40 books, I think, before he passed in 2015. But this phrase that he introduced, this is kind of like his thing, his hallmark. It is this phrase of mimetic rivalry, mimetic rivalry, uh, like, like mime, mime-etic rivalry. That's, that's how it's spelled, okay? And what this is referring to is that what he is postulating is that desire, our longings, the things that we want in life, are not this kind of instinctual, internal, individual thing that we kind of all have, and then it's, that it's something that we just express and then it's either satisfied or, or it's not satisfied. It's not this individual thing. He says that it's desire is imitative. In other words, we want things often because we see other people wanting them. And when we see, and if that person, that other person that we see wanting them, if that that other person is someone that we want to be like, that is especially true. And that person is probably going to be even more influential on what we desire, right? Um, some examples of this, right? I would love uh, to use the excuse that, that my son Ransom loves Legos, right? We love Legos. Yes, absolutely. I have to own the fact that he didn't just come by that desire on his own. That he actually is imitating a desire and a love of Legos and playing with Legos that, that I have. It really helps my brain. That's my like adult reason. But also as a kid, I didn't have the kinds of Legos that are now available and it's amazing. Okay, And my love for that, my wanting Legos, he wants them too because of that. Because he looks up to me, right? You know, he's going to be seven in December and, and our other son, Deacon, it just turned two. And that is the age, if you have kids at this age, you know that he is literally mimicking every word indeed we commit. And I use that word very intentionally, right? It is mimetic. He's, he is wanting to do the things that we want to do and the things that we do. And that's really adorable and awesome at seven and at almost seven and just turned two. But it can also be really dangerous in some ways because we are fallen human beings with fallen broken, sinful desires. Uh, Peter Lightheart uh, says this really well, and specifically in regard to this passage, he says, the more closely we mimic the desires of others, the greater the danger of violent rivalry. The more sons mimic their father's desires, the greater the danger of strife between fathers and sons. Right? We actually uh, got to see this. I know that we we're kind of a divided congregation probably on this. But a couple of weeks ago, the uh, CSU head coach made some comment about uh, Coach Prime at CU saying that when he was raised uh, and when he was growing up, when you talk to somebody, you take off your hat and your sunglasses. 
This is a good example of a mimetic rivalry and a, an implicit jealousy of attention that Coach Prime is getting. I don't know, I don't know, I don't even know the guy's name, the CSU head coach, but I don't even, I definitely don't know his heart. But so often in the case, when we see conflict, especially about a certain thing or a certain aspect of somebody else, when we see that coming happening in public, you can almost guarantee there's, a, there's something of a jealousy going on in the midst of that at, at its heart, right? This is not just something we see in culture. We see this in Scripture, right? At the very, very beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when the snake, when Satan enters into the garden, what is the pitch that he makes to Adam and Eve, right? He says, did God say don't, that you would surely die if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, you see, what's really going on there, Adam and Eve, is that God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want a rival. He doesn't want you to imitate him. But you should want to imitate him. Never mind that you already bear his image and you don't need to, right? This is mimetic rivalry. And so it's the same thing that is going on when Israel, as we talked about at the very beginning, when, when they are saying that they, uh, telling Samuel that they want a king like the nations. That's mimetic. Both of these examples are like Las Vegas-style neon signs signaling imminent and catastrophic conflict. Something is going to happen. Knowing that, let's reread verses 8 and 9. With that lens and filter, we, understand, we have a, a much clearer picture of what's actually going on here. And it says that Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed to thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You see, Saul initially saw David as this champion, as this, 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 this great warrior that he could use for his own power and station and position, but this cheering crowd awakened in him a deep insecurity. You know, it's interesting, like, um, I was reading one commentator who, who was describing how in Hebrew poetry, this kind of, what, sound, what looks to us like a contrast, like Saul slayed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, like that's actually just a, a literary device that's the equivalent of, of, of saying like Saul and David both slayed their thousands, nay, their ten thousands, right? It's not intended to be a contrast or a comparison, but that's absolutely how Saul heard it. And when it awakened in him that insecurity, he then had to assume the worst of David's motives and treat him as a threat or as a rival. What's really interesting about this and what's really sad is that David didn't view it that way. There's nothing in the text that says that David even wanted any of the attention that he was getting or what he thought about it at all. It is silent about what he thinks or feels about it. That is intended to point us in a different direction. Because in reality, Saul's desires are not in conflict with David's desire to be king. They're in conflict with God's desire. For David to be king. That's the whole point of the anointing that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And in Saul's reaction to this, 
he is showing and demonstrating that he, is dis- he has already disqualified himself from the position that he already has and the one that he only has because God gave it to him. <sighs> Let me ask this. Is it, is it possible that much of the anger and frustration we feel with someone, especially if we view that someone as a threat to us or a rival to what we desire or even, even as a threat to what we view as good and holy in the world, right? Is it possible that that anger or frustration actually isn't with them, but it's with God? Is it possible that when we prioritize and pursue our desires over and above God's, that we're actually viewing our relationship with God as transactional, not just horizontally with other people, but we actually don't believe that God might be faithful to us in the midst of this, that, that that's actually a zero-sum mentality that assumes we have to achieve or defend something on our own because God won't meet us there. Man, I actually had a conversation with someone here at the table this week, um, and we were talking about uh, this guy... Uh, was watching someone he knew on, on social media. And, and at one point, he realized that, man, this guy is really putting to words and, and sharing some frustrations that he has too. And, and, but almost like as he realized that, man, this, this guy is articulating an anger and a frustration I have, as time went on, he said, it made me see how my anger could take me to a bad place because of where it took this guy. He said, it made me... It made me realize it could make me into someone I didn't want to be, and I didn't want to be an angry person. Can we just pause and reflect on how incredible that is? And that's because that's not how it normally goes. Is it not just so much more easy to see somebody express our anger and our frustration for us to be like, yeah, exactly, that's right. So-and-so or whatever, you know, the obvious... uh, uh, analogies here are, are political, like whatever candidate or party or, or perspective or policy or position, like those are a threat to me. I, they want to interfere with what I want and what I desire. And I have to stand up. I have to say something about it. I have to do something about it because God won't. That's going on in all of our hearts. And the tragic irony of it is that Making what we desire primary over God's fuels mimetic rivalry, and it actually makes us less happy and more angry at more people. Okay, we see this in Saul, right? This transactional friendship that actually sees our relationship with God as transactional, especially in, at maybe, probably at its root. So what's the alternative? Jonathan shows us something very different. Let me reread verses 1 through 5 to refresh our memory. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, uh, David, that is, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Remember that phrase, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. 
And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, we didn't, we didn't preach on 1 Samuel chapter 14, but in that passage, we see that Jonathan has already been fighting and, and winning against the Philistines for years before David said, hold my beer, and slew Goliath with a, a sling and stone. Jonathan also had the same response from the populace who were, who were saying, like praising him and celebrating his victories. So when David, in the verses following, is celebrated and recognized and, and, and included with King Saul, and Jonathan is left out, it would be so easy and even so much, so much easier for him to give in to the temptation of mimetic rivalry, even more so than King Saul, because Saul's already king. Like, he's, th- there's no competition yet. And Jonathan, Jonathan's the one who should be feel threatened here. He should feel jealous. If anything, the entire narrative of 1 Samuel is intentionally setting it up for, so that the reader would expect that. But instead we have... We have verse 4. It says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe and, and that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. If this sounds familiar, it should. Because Saul, when, when David said, I'll slay Goliath, he lent him his armor and his sword and David discarded it because it wasn't time or appropriate to take it from Saul. Jonathan gives it to him. He doesn't lend it to him. He gifts it to him. Jonathan's covenantal commitment to David, it says even a covenant before God he made, it is the opposite of transactional. If anything, it is the posture that John the Baptist had in, in the Gospels when he says that I must decrease so that the God's anointed one, which means society, which, which means Uh, Messiah or Christ, so that God's anointed one may increase. Jonathan is, I mean, John the Baptist was 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 very appropriately named. This is his his at least his spiritual great grandfather in that sense, right? Now, for us, we read this and it's like, oh, this. This this probably sounds really heartwarming, right? Like, how beautiful is this that Jonathan would do this? But I don't want us to rush past the fact that this is incredibly sad. It's really sad for Jonathan. Jonathan and how he responds is actually how Saul should have responded to David. It's how Saul should have received God's anointed one but didn't. See, as the heir, Jonathan is supposed to be learning from his dad. He's supposed to be, 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 be having an example of, of what a good king looks like, and instead he is demonstrating that he is more qualified to be king than Saul. And Saul already ruined any chance of that. It was just too little, too late. Jonathan wasn't concerned about himself. He was self-forgetful. 
his commitment beautifully and wonderfully was actually toward what God's desires were, not his own ambitions. He laid those aside along with his robe and submitted them to David. Now, that helps us understand and, and, and kind of like wrap our minds and hearts around this idea of what it means to be self-forgetful. But, but friendship is more than just that kind of humble posture, right? Friendship is, is still more than that. But before I, before I kind of dig into that, I want to anticipate something that, that maybe you're thinking about because there is a, a trend, and maybe you've heard it even preached this way before, that the, the, the love that Jonathan and, David and, Jonathan and David have for each other is, is romantic and or sexual here. That this intimacy that's being described is, is, is that kind of intimacy that would be reserved for husbands and wives only. <sighs> there are a lot of things I could say to this, but the, I think the primary thing for us to know is that that is an incredible statement and a, another mirror, another reflection that says far more about us and our culture right now than it does about Jonathan and David. Specifically, we live in a time and place and in a culture that has made friendship, that has reduced friendship to something that is, is, is utterly transactional and or sexual in nature, and so much so that we wouldn't recognize true and deep friendship if it threw a spear at us. First of all, let me unpack this, that claim a little bit because, because it, it, it illustrates something here that's really important. First of all, if you actually go back and see the different timelines of when Jonathan was fighting against the Philistines and when David enters the picture, you, we actually can add up that, that Jonathan was probably about 30 years older than David at this point. I mean, at all points. That's how age works, right? <laughs> it progresses at the same time, okay? <laughs> wow. Point being... That he, that he is both a friend to David, but at least as much a father figure, right? He is, he is both a brother and a father in his friendship to David. And by the way, like what a gift for David that had to have been, right? The guy who's like discarded by his own dad and his brothers are like, you don't belong here. Go back to your mother's skirts. Like go back and tend the sheep. You're, you're not worth it. Like... To, to receive that treatment from both father and brother, and then to have Saul treat him so similarly, worse even, what a contrast Jonathan's friendship is to him. But more than that, when it says that he made a covenant before God with David, this is, this is a holistic commitment. In the Old Testament, this is primarily and especially a, a political arrangement. To make a covenant with another king was to, was to sign a treaty. It was, it was an alliance and, and an, an agreement and a commitment of unconditional support. And so John, Jonathan, he's abdicating, he's abdicating the throne. And he's doing so because he's humble enough to both see and submit to God's hand in and through David's life. I said as we were reading, lastly, uh, to, to remember that phrase when it says, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That is a phrase that is also translated in the Old Testament as to love someone as yourself. 
To love someone as your own soul is to love someone as yourself. It means self-forgetful. It means to put them first over and above your own wants and needs. And if you're wondering, wow, that sounds very familiar. That sounds like when Jesus says that we are called to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Is there a connection there? Yes, absolutely. So unless Jesus is calling into us into romantic relationships with our neighbors, that's not what this is talking about. Jesus is talking about friendship. And, 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 and this is what 1 Samuel is trying to tell us is that this is the inauguration of a profound friendship whose modern equivalent, we, the, only way, the only words that we typically have to describe this is that they were brothers from another mother. Right? In fact, I myself am such a product of this culture, it is hard for me to come up with the words to describe what the quality of that friendship is like. Because I don't think many of us actually have a whole lot of examples to draw on. So, of course, when you're in that kind of a situation, the only thing you can do is quote from Eugene Peterson. If you know who Eugene Peterson is, he has the words for that kind of thing in ways that we rarely do. And so I want to read kind of a longish quote from him, but it's because I, there, I literally just don't, there's, there's no way to improve upon this, right? Speaking of Jonathan and David's friendship, here's, here's, here's what he's saying. He says, the greatest thing any person can do for another is to confirm the deepest thing in him, in her to take the time and have the discernment to see what's most deeply there, most fully that person, and then confirm it by recognizing and encouraging it. He kind of pivots to describe the transactional alternative. He says, each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who the moment they set eyes on us begin calculating what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so that they won't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are, and if we're in constant association with them, we become less. And he says, here's the alternative. And then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, who is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, confirms with what's deepest within us, a friend. Now what's interesting is as I read this, I, I realize how many of us long for this too, but have come to only really look for it in a spouse. You know, it's very common for us to say, to describe our, our husband or our wife as, as our best friend. And I think that there's a very good aspect of that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. And I think there are aspects of friendship that might not be possible with a spouse, and that might be okay. That we need community outside of and in addition to our marriage. But because we live in a transactional culture that doesn't have a category for that anymore and that often sexualizes and romanticizes all relationships, it either is or it is not, and there's nothing in between, we don't have a category for that at all. It's another mirror. Now, I'm going to 
jump into the Q&A here in just a minute, but I want to tie all this together before we do, because there's one more mirror that in this that we can reflect on, and that is the very good news, the gospel even, of God's friendship. Let me reread verse 3, which says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. You see, like David, we are adopted by a king. But this king is very different than Saul. Rather than see us as useful to him, i.e. transactionally, this king loves us, loves you as himself. He is even self-forgetful of his own safety, of his own protection, of his own rights, of his own powers even, and emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians. Rather than treat you as a threat, he removed his royal robes to make you an heir and eliminate the threat of sin and death. Rather than throw spears at you, his side was pierced by a spear that was intended for you. Rather than send you away to fight his battles for him, this king has so knit his soul to yours that his very name, who he is, is Emmanuel, is God with us. For God to not be with you, for Christ the king to not be with you at every moment would require Jesus to not be God any longer. He didn't just make a covenant before God, as Jonathan did, he is the God who made and kept and fulfilled all covenant promises with his people, including you, at infinite cost to himself. I'm not just saying this because it feels good to know that. In a world that is transactional and sees all relationships through that lens, it is not just a comfort to know that this is God who sees us this way, it has dramatic implications about how we understand friendship, right? At its core, friendship is not, it's not just the safety net that you need to mitigate crises as they come up, so we better have enough friends for when that happens. It's not a luxury that you can afford maybe once you've made it far enough in your career that you have time for it. Pro tip, you won't. Turns out when you work for a company and you keep giving more to it, they don't exactly tell you you can stop now. Friendship is an essential aspect of being fully human and being fully alive. And, theologically speaking, it's one of only a handful of significant paradigms that God uses to communicate to us who he is to us and who we are to him. When Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of being a friend to sinners, he said, that is the only thing I am guilty of. I mean, let me put it, like, so what does that look like, right? Like, what does that look like horizontally, okay? I want to give some personal practical application here, right? The spear that, that when, when Saul threw spears at David, that was the first of six attempts Saul will make to kill David, each one more blatant and desperate than the last. David 
like what's really incredible about this, the narrative is how much David somehow endures without defending himself every single time. David has a lot of faults. We're going to talk about those as we go. Something that is incredibly rare is that he endures without defending himself and every single time. How does he do that? I think it is because of Jonathan's friendship. It is a constant, even when it is distant, when he is far away and not able to be in physical proximity with Jonathan. I've shared before how um, in my first role as a pastor at a church, not the table, um, went through a like two-year period of, of, of enduring spiritual abuse. And to whatever degree I was able to endure without, uh, without defending myself, it is because of a friendship of, of, a, of a pastor in St. Louis I knew and who was a friend and a mentor to me. He was a former homiletics or preaching professor of mine at seminary named Greg Johnson. And toward the end of that two-year period of conflict, um, I, it, was, it was actually about the, the session or the elders giving me permission and blessing to go and uh, for Hannah and I to go to get uh, a church planter assessment to to have somebody speak into, should we be planting a church or not? Should we plant a church? And when that was very unclear, Greg sent a letter that I keep... Um, <clears throat> that I keep in a spot in my office and pull out every once in a while for encouragement. And I just want to read part of it here. And this is... I'm, honestly, I'm kind of embarrassed about this because he is such a good friend. Okay. Um, he says to the, to the elders, he says, as Christian leaders, our job is to take ourselves out of the equation moment by moment. We must become self-forgetful, not using ministry to make ourselves important, but instead taking the lowest seat at the table, daily dying for the sake of others. You aren't doing Christian leadership right until it feels like dying. And he used, quotes Colossians 1.24, which says, filling up in your flesh what is lacking in the affliction of, of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. And for Brad, it has felt like dying. He accepted the loss of an evening service, which was long story there, but he accepted the loss of the preaching role that that would have afforded. He was learning to die well, remarkably well for a man so young. And in that death, I've seen God maturing Brad as a man and leader. Now I want to raise the question that Brad cannot raise given this emphasis. I am writing to encourage you to consider how you can best bless Brad during this season. Churches typically use assistant pastors and then kick them to the curve once they've outlasted their usefulness. Transactional. That's using people to get ministry done, and the gospel teaches us instead to use ministry to get people done. How can you help get Brad done? A man like Brad will not be an assistant pastor forever. He has the most gifted, he was the most gifted preaching student I ever taught at Covenant Seminary. Five years from now, he will either be a senior pastor of a church or he will have planted a church he may not be at Rocky Mount, this church. Oops. Looking back then, what role will you have played in Brad's story in shaping and building him up? That is the most profound experience of gospel friendship I've experienced. I can't tell you, like, and that is also the culmination of the friendship he gave to me for two years 
And it was incredible. It was beautiful and it was so helpful. That was in my mind as, we're pre- as I was preparing for this, this sermon this week when I was listening to an interview with a um, guy named David Kinneman who is the president of Barna. That may be familiar to you because they do a lot of surveys and stuff for, around church and, and religion in, in the U.S. And he made this statement that I think is very true. He says, the church has prepared younger generations for success but has not prepared them for suffering. And that struck me because the contrast there and what, what Greg modeled to me in so many ways is, it, is this truth that success will always require you to treat friendship as transactional, if not sacrifice it outright. But suffering is impossible without faithful friends who have covenanted before God to, in commitment to one another. You might say, without fellow members of the church. Because that's what a member, church membership actually is. When, when someone stands up here and says, I covenant to, to be committed to this church, they're covenanting to, be, to being friends, to being gospel friends, non-transactional, self-forgetful friends, and that is then covenanted and committed in reverse. That's what the church is. So it's not just that friendship is this important thing that individuals need. It's actually the foundation of what it means to be the church. And so if we don't understand what, friend be, what friendship is, we don't understand what it means to be the church either. And we're seeing that fruit in so many ways bear out. So at the table, you might be asking, okay, well, how are we trying to do this differently? First of all, that's why we have community groups it's actually one of, you, one of our community group leaders who summed it up so amazingly that I, am, I, have, I have quoted this person at least five times since she first said it, which is, we got to teach people how to people again. Yes, amen. Absolutely amen to that, right? And I want to say, like, I, can I speak especially to the men here for just a minute, okay? Because... And I'm singling us out a little bit because, women, you're way ahead of us, okay? We're really bad at this. And there's some ways that it's stacked against us. But, like, just to, to, to illustrate this, literally also this week, CNN came out with an article that said the male, so the title of the article is The Male Loneliness Epidemic. First of all, there's a male loneliness epidemic. And how it affects fathers, says only 48% of men reported in a, in a survey feeling satisfied with friendships, according to a May 2021 survey. One in five men said they had gotten emotional support from a friend in the past week compared with four in 10 women. A quote from this says, it said, loneliness within fatherhood especially goes way beyond having a spouse or not. We have to go back to the most basic concept of community, and that's friendship. The ability to seek advice or be vulnerable without fear is priceless, and as fathers, we don't have that in this current environment. Too many new dads lack the ordinary, ongoing, and everyday mentorship that comes from having regular friends involved in our lives. So if you're a guy, I just we're going to do this, this practical application. I want you to take your phone out, okay? No, I'm real serious about this, actually. Take your phone out. Pull up your calendar. I know how awkward this is. I'm sorry, but not. Take out your calendar, and I want you to go to October 20th. It's a Friday night. 
and I want you to put in there at 6.30 p.m., starting at 6.30 p.m., an event called Beard and Bottle. And it is exactly how it sounds. You are invited to come to my house at that time and that evening and bring a bragworthy bottle of beer and we're going to hang out. I know it's weird. 6.30 p.m. Yes. You can come a little late. Not too late because I know how on time is on Sunday mornings. So, yeah. You're welcome, Mel. <laughs> I want you to come. I, like, I'm not... You being here, I'm not going to like take attendance or what have you. You might have something going on that night already, but I don't want it to be because you forgot or because you didn't know about it, okay? And I'm not saying that that one time our getting together is going to be the end-all, be-all, and no, we're not going to be like soul-bearing. Like we're just going to hang out and provide some space for it to maybe happen at some point, okay? Because once again, we are remedial. All right, I'm done. Let me pull up and see what questions we have. Okay, does this friendship come out of suffering? Okay, so I'm assuming that by this friendship, you mean this kind of gospel friendship. Yes, it is a chicken and egg kind of situation. It is impossible to, it is just impossible to have, to to endure suffering well without a, some kind of proportionate friendship. But also, yes, suffering, it solidifies and builds and strengthens and grows friendship, okay? Um, I used to be an MP and then a chaplain in the Army National Guard. I was there for 11 years. Let me tell you, it's a, there, is, there is nothing like the friendship. Like, there's a reason why uh, soldiers refer to one another as brothers in arms, because having gone through something like that, there's just really not much that's comparable to that in, in life in terms of the closeness of friendship that are forged in that, right? You do not have to be in the military to experience this kind of friendship, though, a gospel friendship. It is not limited to suffering. And so I want to be careful not to, like, shame in some way or imply that, like, if you haven't suffered much, like, that's why you don't have friends, you're too privileged or something. Like, no. It, it actually has a lot more to do with whether or not we, we, we give God a chance to do that and, and whether we realize we have that need at all in the first place because everyone, everything around us in, in life would love to tell us that we are human doings and not human beings, Okay, so, yes. Um, all right, I have several questions for the address for the men's gathering, and okay, de- I'm not great with details, but keep an eye out for the newsletter. I'll give you, it's gonna be at my home, it'll be at my home address, but we record this, and I don't wanna give my home address to everybody, okay? Um, how about October 27th? It's October 20th, I'm sorry, we'll try to do it again. If you want to hang out on October 27th, let me know. Let's hang out, okay? If you can't make October 20th, okay? Um, you guys are hilarious. I love you. Truly, this is fantastic. Um, and that's, that's all the questions. So let me pray. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you for humor, and I thank you for... Um, I thank you for desires, and I thank you for longing. 
I think you, there's a sense that you have made us to be creatures of desires. And that in, in bearing your image, it is impossible to be made for the love that you have for us without having a longing for it in our lives and in, our, in ourselves. So Lord, help us to see that in a lot of ways, as C.S. Lewis said, that it is not just, it is not that our desires are too strong. Is it too weak? They're too weak. That we satisfy our desires on a mud pie in a slum when we are promised a holiday at sea. Lord, help us to see that all of our longings are met and satisfied in your love for us. And that that in turn frees us to not defend ourselves, to endure without defending, to, to suffer well, and to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ such that we knit our souls together in your church, in your body. Lord, redeem friendship in our lives with your love and your gospel, and we pray in your name. Amen.